there's a, a beautiful expression from Microsoft recently, I think it was from Satya Nadella himself, which was that tech is deflationary in an inflationary world. We are providing the tools to help people keep to manage their costs, to avoid some of the aspects of inflation that otherwise cause pain. Just like 50 years ago, buying machinery and automating your factories was deflationary in an inflationary environment. The software is that from the modern world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Orbit, the HG podcast series, where we talk to leaders and innovators from across the software and technology ecosystem, discussing the key trends changing how we all do business. I'm Matthew Brockman, managing partner at HG, and today I'm talking to HG's head of tech research, David Toms, Tomsy, to discuss some of the key trends we're seeing in the software sector over the last quarter. So, David, we're sat here at the end of March. It's been slightly eventful, I'd say, publicly in the public markets the last six months. What would you call out as the kind of key trend lines, the key things we've seen over that period? I think the biggest thing we've seen is an unwinding, I suppose, of, of the growth trade, if I can call it that, which is that if you go back to just pre-pandemic and then certainly the first year of the pandemic world, 2020 to mid-2021, essentially investors were very, very excited by growth in any form. I think because it became so rare for a period of time because most companies were struggling so much. And there were a number of other factors potentially at play as well around stimulus checks and the retail market getting involved and so on. But, but broadly, what we saw for that period was it didn't really matter what the economics of your business were. It just mattered how fast it was growing. And what that drove was a, a sort of a massive valuation expansion in all kinds of stocks led more by their growth and the excitement around their story than necessarily about their underlying economics. And basically, we've seen a reversal of that. It, it probably started sometime around spring last year, but there's been an acceleration of that in the latter part of last year and, and the first quarter of this year. So you're seeing the effect of essentially money no longer being free. And so businesses with models that haven't really proven out customer economics and how they would scale are at risk of no longer being funded or, or, or seeing a real significant sort of shift in value. Yes, exactly. If you look at unprofitable companies, broadly unprofitable software and services companies have seen their EV to sales multiple half over the last 12 months. That's a pretty big change in sentiment. And I think one of the big challenges for the public markets rather than for the world we exist in, but for the public markets is you actually have very little to go on. You've got the statutory reporting. And then on top of that, you've got what management want to tell you. I sort of used to describe it when I was an analyst in the olden days as, as being like trying to solve a hundred piece jigsaw where the regulator says the 10 pieces you have to be given. Management get to choose another five pieces they might or might not show you. And you've got to work out what the picture looks like after that. And you know, that's a pretty tough job. I think you know, a key difference to our world is we do get to see the entire jigsaw set or at least the vast majority of it. And just to put you on the spot for a second, I'll bring us back to private markets for a second. Do you, do you sense some of those public stocks are oversold? Would you, I mean, not a market we're in, but do you sense some of those high growth sort of public, public stocks are, you know, there's, there's, there's value there? Yes. When we look now at overall valuations in the market, there's definitely some that look quite interesting. In fact, I'll, I'll use an analogy. If you, if you rewind to a period that you and I are both old enough to remember, which is the 2000-2001 dot-com crash, from March 2000 to September 2001, pretty much every dot-com stock fell by about 90%. Now, some of those then ceased to exist. Others fell by 90%. I mean, Amazon, for example. Amazon fell over 90% in that crash. Amazon rose 50,000% from then until now. But it fell like every other company. There will be situations like that happening right now. Obviously, the scale of fall is much smaller, but 
the market is normalizing all valuations onto a sort of an assumed set of economics. Some companies will grow faster, will be better. The opportunity to find those. If we segment into the companies, let's call them the, you know, the profitable companies, the cash flow generative, the sort of set of the software universe, and, and perhaps stay on the public side for a second, sense of kind of how they've traded over the period, whether that's been caught in the same downdraft, whether there's a different effect going on, just to capture what you're seeing there. I, there's been a lot less pressure there. So if we take the profitable ones, they've, since December 20, they're down about 5% or so versus, and this is in EV sales terms, and the unprofitable ones are down about 50%. Now, I'm just talking valuation here. All these companies have grown. So you know, it's just worth observing. If your valuation's fallen 50%, but your sales have grown 100%, then your share price has actually stayed flat. So for the profitable companies, the valuation's down a few percent, but the companies will have grown 10% or so. So net-net, investors are still in the money over this period on the profitable companies. In general, on the unprofitable ones, they are out of the money, but not by quite, you know, they haven't halved their money, like the valuations might suggest. And perhaps we'll talk to the, the, the sort of private environment coming out of the public for a second. Uh, I mean, you have the benefit of sitting in all, all of our investment committees and watching us all at work, David. Your sense of kind of what we're seeing in the private markets, and I'm, I'm happy to add to the contribution here about sort of what, we, what we're focused on as a firm. But when we think about what we're seeing in terms of the valuations now of, of businesses coming through the IC and, and start. I think we're, we're in a period which you often get when valuations change, where you know, largely seller expectations are, are round about where they were six months ago, a year ago. Seller expectations change slower than buyer expectations. There's a lot of inertia in the system. I mean, if you think about it, you know, advisors will have pitched for the business some months ago and advisors will have promised management teams and financial owners a certain price or, or not necessarily promised, but um, implied that they're very confident of a certain price. So it's almost in nobody's interest on the sell side to reappraise the prospects for a business quickly. Whereas clearly on the buy side, where, where we may be sitting in these transactions on, on investment committee, it's in our interests to reprice appropriately, but not too aggressively. And I, I suppose I'll, I'll throw this back to you at this point, because our job isn't just to swing around like the public markets and say, we're not going to buy anything for three weeks. Oh, now we're going to buy everything again. So. So if I throw it back at you, Matthew, in terms of IC, what, are, what do you think we're seeing at the moment from a valuation perspective? I think we're exercising caution, I would say, in really two directions. The first I'd highlight really is in, is in those high uh, growth ARR-led dead transactions that we've been talking about. If I think about our willingness to underwrite very long term, so you know, five, 10 years of sustained ARR growth, accelerating you know, logo penetration, plus very significant upsell, cross-sell, that's an area where I think we're exercising just caution, given, given what's happened to all these evaluations, but just given the longevity of that kind of return versus something which has got more immediate cash generation and visible ways of, of sort of you know, growing and, and, and sending value back to shareholders. I'd say the second area is, just a willingness to, to, to pull back from some of the more esoteric, should we call them, some of the more creative uh, uh, metrics that we, we see in the market, or we have seen in the market in the last year or two, which is the level of proformering, the, the use of billings EBITDA, you know, the, the, the logos that are going to get sold with deferred revenue that are going to happen this year, and then uh, you know, adding that plus, plus proformering for M&A that's not yet been signed. Those sorts of things have been around for a sustained period of time and we spent a lot of time adjusting for them over the last over the last years um but i would say that our sh the sharpness with which we're focused on 
underlying customer economics, underlying cash flow, underlying fundamental possibility of the company and the individual products and the way the business has been built and is run is, is even sharper now than, than it's ever been as we just try and make sure we, you know, we back the right companies with the right, the right opportunities and the right business shape into, you know, into, this, into this current environment. Yeah, and I guess thinking thinking to my my Amazon analogy of of the ninety five percent fall when all the other dot coms fell ninety five percent, and that being the real opportunity with Amazon, I guess when we look at that same approach, that's also going to yield opportunities in some of those same high growth companies because if you can get far enough into the underlying economics, then you can determine that actually there's a truly profitable business in there, but it is masked by usually expansionary spending of some kind, and if we can get deep enough into the snowballs, the cohort analysis and so on, that gives us quite a rare edge to potentially be able to make investment decisions that might look quite brave at the time, frankly, but actually are, are very well underpinned. Yeah, if I think about the work we do now relative to the way we were underwriting deals maybe five, 10 years ago, and not look, obviously the world's matured and we've learned and we learn from our own experiences and how we do things, but the resolution with which we focus on customer, customer economics, and the data with which that's underpinned from within our own analysis and our own work is very detailed. And so the, the specificity with which we understand the target customer, customer segmentations, how the product is bought, the acquisition cost of those customers, the effectiveness of the sales organization, retention rates, yield, cross-sell, pricing architectures, I mean, all this stuff is week in week out incredibly familiar about how we are thinking about these companies and what we're talking about investment committee i think that's the that's the toolkit that's what you need to be able to invest in those kind of companies because there will be opportunities there will be businesses that are oversold where there is fundamentally still very very interesting long-term opportunity but you've got to be really thoughtful about how to go and understand that 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 sort of core economic uh, core customer economic proposition Yes, now I doubt we're going to find any 50,000 percenters. In fact, I suspect our investors might get a little upset with the degree of risk they think we're taking. But I agree, I mean, there, there should be some very interesting stuff that shakes out over the next year or two. What's your sense of the bellwethers of the public markets? You know, the firms you look at as being you know, the canaries in the mine, perhaps for, uh, you know, what happens during the course of 22. Do you see any early signs? I mean, you mentioned the Adobe news there, and obviously we're getting to kind of Q1 season, perhaps. Any sort of sense or any kind of early highlights of what you, you know, does that occur, sort of align with what we've, what we've discussed? I think what we're seeing across the market, I particularly look at areas like the industrials because they just give you a very broad view globally and cover lots and lots of industries. So the, the multi-industrial space, names like GE and so on, um, just tend to, to give an overall perception of how their customers, who are everybody's customers, how they're trading. And what I'd say we're seeing there is, a certain degree of caution around the first half with some optimism for the second, but, but a, a shape to the year that does require a bit of a second half acceleration. And in my experience, when you start to see that shape at this time in the year, it makes me just a little bit nervous about how the second half could evolve because we've, the second half doesn't have a particularly easy set of comps. Do you remember 2021 was showing some very good acceleration out of COVID, particularly in the last part of the year. 2022, you know, we, we'll be comping against that in the second half, which will make things look a little bit tougher. It's potentially not till we get to 2023 when we're in a more normal economic environment where it's a bit more of a like-for-like -like comparison. So I would say I feel a little nervous about the shape of this year. And I think what we're hearing is that nervousness echoed by corporates and their customers not in a catastrophic fashion, just in a, things might be a little bit tighter than we thought they'd be.
So I guess if I recap our, our current stance, I'd say we believe that the long run macro trends underpinning a lot of the investment that HG makes remain fundamentally very robust. You know, we're backing obviously automation of typically workflow processes using software. It's technology enabled, so it relies on processing power, it relies on regulation, it relies on distribution of those products. So that's a 10, 20 year macro trend, I think that we back for, 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 for those 20 years and we'll continue to back in our, in our investment activity. A degree, I guess, of more caution in the immediate future around how fast people can make buying decisions on new products, how rapidly we can scale companies, and therefore how we play that through, coupled with also just being very sensitive to, to inflation and price inflation. And again, how we, how we capture that not only in our new deal investment activity, but also how we might reflect it in our portfolio activity as well. Yes, I think actually you made a really important point in there when you talked about sort of the secular opportunity for what's going on and what drives it, because one of the input costs for our sector is the hardware. I mean, you know, still for an IT budget, it's a big chunk of what people end up spending. And in terms of things we have on our side on an ultra long term view and have had on our side for a long time, Moore's law is almost inescapable. Your hardware gets more and more capable and more cheap uh, and cheaper um, each year. So we're in a situation where there is there is deflation for one of the big input costs at least you know for our customers we don't actually buy very much hardware or in a cloud sense we might be buying some to run it but it's not a major part but our customers still have a significant hardware expense so from a technology budget perspective we can actually afford things to get a little bit tougher because part of the technology cost is coming down all the time and then we have software on top of that helping us out there's a, a beautiful expression from Microsoft recently, I think it was from Satya Nadella himself, which was that tech is deflationary in an inflationary world. We are providing the tools to help people keep to manage their costs, to avoid some of the aspects of inflation that otherwise cause pain. Just like 50 years ago, buying machinery and automating your factories was deflationary in an inflationary environment. The software is that from the modern world. I've been struck over many years by the charts you've shown us, David, which show the you know, relative spend of, of large financial institutions, whether it's the big investment banks or other entities on, on people versus technology and how much the, the, sort of the relative weight of the tool technology is, is, is incredibly pronounced. Yes, in fact, there was a recent statement from, um, from JP Morgan or some, some recent investor discussions because JP Morgan announced that it's going to ramp up its tech spend even further. To put this in context, JP Morgan has a, an overall expenses base of about $80 billion a year, and it's going to ramp its tech spend up from about $10 billion a year to $15 billion a year. So you know, it's spending on tech in the way that a software company spends as a percentage of its revenue. I mean, it's a, it's a massive amount of money. And in fact, one of the comments I saw from an analyst on JP Morgan was that JPM would be potentially outspending the entire global fintech industry with its own IT budget. So the scale of what is being spent on, on software and technology solutions is absolutely immense, but it still pales into insignificance compared to JP Morgan's overall staff budget, which will be several times the software budget. So I guess the other thing we, we talked on a little bit there as we came through, which is worth just worth picking up again, is this, is this area of predictability, where it feels like we've now had, I mean, certainly in the last, just over a decade, we've probably had three major shocks in sort of global economies, right? We had the global financial crisis. We had, I guess, we had some effects in Europe in 2011. We then went into a pandemic, which none of us foresaw. And yet the portfolio continues to trade. I mean, I'm, I'm I was going to say surprised, I'm pleasantly surprised perhaps with just how resilient. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're backing the kind of companies we expect to trade well to these situations. But, you know, we, we continue to see revenue growth. We continue to see growth. I say it's not that we don't see some impact in decision making and so on in, in, in these kind of events. But 
it's just remarkable how resilient the category is and how generally we've been able to build a portfolio which continues to, to, to perform in, those, in that context. You know, to an extent, we, we are and we should be the biggest bulls of our sector. We all love what we do and we love the industry. And yeah, despite that, it, it astonishes us with how good it can be. If I think back to our 2019 AGM, which was my, my first time on stage for HG, and one of the things we talked about was how we expected there would be a recession in the near term because we'd had 10 years of, uh, of great economic environment since the GFC. It was only inevitable we'd see a downturn. Obviously, we had no idea of what the nature would be and showed quite a lot of data on how we and how the industry performed during the global financial crisis and how it had massively outperformed the world in general. And therefore, we thought investors could be quite confident that in the next recession, whatever form it took, we'd outperform. But you know, even so, we had no idea that it would be you know, a matter of months before the industry overall was, was well ahead of where it had been pre-pandemic. And in the case of portfolio, you know, we, we never had a down month from a revenue perspective. You know, this was the sharpest recession in a century. And even in the, you know, the, the trough month, May 2020, we can probably all remember it quite well because we were undoubtedly either locked at home or taking on one hour of allocated exercise. But you know, May 2020, the portfolio grew organically versus May 2019. And yes, you're right. Yeah, we're seeing a challenging time now. But the question is around the growth rate, not, not a sort of 2001-esque, how far will we fall? The other questions I've been asked recently and that and I thought was a very interesting take on our, on our market as a private equity market for software was just the sheer volume of companies that are sort of in our ecosystem and how the trend line is of how many software companies exist, both at the upper end, you know, the, the, the large, the sort of, you know, three, five, ten billion dollar large enterprise value deals, the sort of scale and velocity of those in, 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 in the private investment sphere as well as the velocity of businesses coming through at the smaller end, you know, the, in, in our language, the Mercury fund end, where you've got the 100, 200, $300, 400000000 million EV. And again, just the sheer scale at which both ends of that sort of market spectrum are growing significantly. I, I, I really welcome your, your, you know, your observations on what you see there, David, in terms of just the, just the, the size of the ecosystem we're operating in. It's an interesting one because it's one of those areas where, you're right, we get investor questions about it. And I think back over the last four years, it's an area where, investors were probably much more worried four years ago about the opportunity set than, than they are today, but we still get the questions. I think what we've, what we've seen is simultaneously consolidation and fragmentation. You know, at the very large end, we've had the very large companies buying up, you know, let's say Microsoft buying LinkedIn. We've you know, seen quite a lot of transactions from Oracle uh, and potentially more coming through from Oracle in the healthcare space. So we've seen this kind of large scale consolidation, but to make a difference for those large companies, their deals have to be quite large. And then at the other end of the market, we've got all kinds of new companies coming to market with new propositions and, uh, and almost a, a fragmentation of the range of opportunities. I think what we're really seeing is the, as customers get more and more used to automating processes using software to help things, they just see more and more things you could get the software to help with. And so it goes from you know, 50 years ago, all your HR department did in terms of automation was a payroll system. And there was a very small number of payroll providers in the world. Those payroll providers got massively larger and some of them hoovered up a lot of other companies on the way, ADP being a great example. But meanwhile, the sophistication of what an HR department does has grown so massively that I mean, if you take our HR department, you know, it's dealing with all kinds of things, not just sort of pay and rations, but also charitable giving and how we manage that. You know, 20 years ago when I started out working, charitable giving was uh, my, my employer provided it but it was a simple payroll deduction to an account and then you had to write a paper charity check now at hg we have this completely automated system where there's 
thousands or hundreds of thousands of charities around the world, all pre-approved, where you can automatically fire money to them, and there's matching and lots of other processes going on, just things that never existed. So we're seeing software coming in and almost driving markets that, that didn't exist before because it can create opportunities to do things very efficiently. You wouldn't want to hire 10 people to run a charitable giving program, but if you can put a piece of software in to do it, it's a great employee incentive. So it's almost segmentation of segmentation. It's actually splitting the workflows into ever smaller pieces, which you can still build very substantial value in, particularly if you've got modern technology, modern software, which can build functionality, which continues to refine, which sees how its customers use its products, which sees where there's demand for increased performance. And then you can start building that in on a, on a rapid release cycle. Just allows you to continue to, you know, to other, either offer more choice and more sort of, very, you know, um, opportunity for the end customer or for them to reduce cost and, you know, increases their ability to perform. Yes. And it's the creation of new markets by making things so easy. It's like, you know, sort of the classic Uber analysis that shows that the majority of Uber journeys aren't a displacement of a traditional taxi. They're actually displacement of somebody walking because it was just easier to get out the door and walk for half a mile, three quarters of a mile. But if you make it so easy that you can just press a button on your phone and Uber turns up, then people will take an Uber. Not so great for our waistlines, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, maybe I should use Peloton as an example. Yeah, there you go. You make it easy, I mean, and it probably is a better example. I, I know you're an avid Peloton user, Matthew. You know, <laughs> do, do you, would you ever have gone to the gym as, much, as often as you get on your Peloton bike? Yeah, it's so much more convenient to go downstairs and jump on the bike and pound out your your miles or your points or whatever you're collecting for your team. Well, and in a digital community, right? It's been it's very well executed in terms of the sense of community and the digital deployment of that interaction. You don't have to go somewhere to be in a room participating in the environment. You're you're with people in your own home, so it's been it's bringing that experience to you. Yes, and, and I have to admit, I mean, as a user of the competing platform, as a big fan of Zwift, you know, I always hated training indoors, but the fact that I can go and get on an indoor bike and cycle with other people, uh, even if they are just avatars, uh, some of them I know personally. But again, the convenience aspect creates a market that didn't exist before. Who would have imagined that we would be spending, as a world, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on home exercise entertainment in a sort of virtual sense, rather than going to the gym? Well, thank you, David, for um, spending this time with me this afternoon. Uh, we were going to do it in person, but obviously the, the dreaded COVID has caught at least one of us. Um, I'm now recovered, at least. Um, but look, thanks for your time, and we look forward to doing this again in, an, in another three months' time. Thank you. Thanks very much, Matthew, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to Orbit, the HG podcast. If you'd like to find out more about HG and our work building businesses that change how we all do business, subscribe to our newsletter at hgcapital.com forward slash newsletters. Thank you.